everyone. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, hello, and uh, please come say hi afterwards. It'd be great to uh, welcome you and then just find out why you're here, how you heard about this place. I have the joy of being one of the pastors here with Mitch and then my wife, Sarah, who leads the kids' ministry downstairs, and we're super grateful to have you guys back and to be back in this space and starting a new ministry season this year. I was just thinking as the... I'm not sure if it's sanding outside. My knowledge is not that good to be, like, hearing what it is. Um, But that's actually not, not the most distracting situation I've ever preached in before. Once I was preaching in Alberta... And it was a family camp, so it was outdoor under, like, a big tent. And behind me, it was nighttime, there was a massive thunderstorm. Like, if you're only from BC, you don't really understand thunderstorms. If you've ever been in the prairies and experienced a thunderstorm, it's just, like, super loud. In the middle of a sentence, and all of a sudden, it'd just be like, boom. Everybody looks, massive lightning happening behind me. I don't think, I don't even remember anything I said. It was pretty epic. At one point, it we literally just turned around and watched the thunderstorm uh, together. So I hope it's not too distracting for us this morning. The passage that we're going to look at today uh, and that the teaching is based on comes from Acts 19. So it's verses 1 to 10 and then 18 to 20. So I'm going to read it for us this morning. It says, While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions and came to Ephesus. He believed the Holy Spirit when you believed. No, they told him, we haven't even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. Into what then were you baptized, he asked them. Into John's baptism, they replied. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who would come after him, that is, in Jesus. Into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came, and they began to speak in tongues and to prophesy. Now there were about twelve men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly over a period of three months, arguing and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became hardened and would not believe, slandering the way in front of the crowd, he withdrew from them, taking the disciples and conducted discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for about two years, so that all the residents of Asia, both Jew and and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. And now down to verse 18. And many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices. While many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everybody. So they calculated their value and found it to be about 50,000 pieces of silver. In this way, the word of the Lord spread and prevailed. This is God's word. Now, this passage is kind of a bit of an odd one. I don't know if you picked up on it. And it's definitely an odd one maybe to choose to preach on kickoff Sunday. But despite the oddness of the passage, which we'll get to, and we'll talk through some of the things that probably seem weird to us as 21st century Western people, this passage showcases what this church is all about and what we're trying to be all about. What God has uh, done in the past here in beautiful ways, and also where we're hoping to head as a church community. And we talk about the church here as a group of people, and we use the word family, that we're a family of people who follow Jesus with three characteristics. The first characteristic is that we're a group of people who love the city, a family who loves the city. The second is that we're a family of people who are centered on Jesus. And then thirdly, we're a group of people who, a family of people who are transformed by the Spirit. People who love the city, who are centered on Jesus, and are transformed by the Spirit. So let's walk through this passage together and and see how it talks about and and showcases each of these things. So the first is that uh, we are a family of people who are centered or who love the city. Now, it's really easy to miss, but this passage starts with these words. It says, while Apollos, so Apollos is one of the early Christian leaders 
It says, while he was in Corinth, which was a major city at the time, Paul, who was another one of the early Christian leaders, traveled through the interior regions and came to Ephesus, which is another city in the area. And so what we see in this passage, and and in fact what we see all throughout the book of Acts, which describes what the early church did, is that people, the leaders, uh, go to these major cities bringing the good news of Jesus. So they go from city to city. They go from Antioch to Lystra to Jerusalem to Rome to Athens with the good news of Jesus. And not only does this characterize the book of Acts in the New Testament, but if you were to look at the entire New Testament, you would see this pattern, that people are always going to uh, cities to take the good news of Jesus. Now, why cities? So why did they go to cities then? And why should we care about cities today? I want to just give us five quick reasons from the book of Acts why cities are important. The first is this. Cities teach us how to love. Cities teach us how to love. You know, most of us, we come to Vancouver because we like the city. We really like what it has to offer. So maybe it's the next step in your career. So maybe you went to McGill, but then you had to come work at KPMG in Vancouver to take the next step in whatever your career is. Or maybe it's the beauty of the landscape that's, that's here. Of course, I think Vancouver is, I can't say for the whole world, but it's one of the most beautiful cities in North America, probably the most beautiful in North America. My wife Sarah and I, we got the privilege of taking a boat up the Jervis Inlet just a couple weeks ago. And you're on the ocean in the inlet, and there's these beautiful green mountains coming up both sides. It's just spectacular, unbelievable. I'd never been there before. And it's just breathtaking. It was a three-hour boat ride, and the entire time uh, is just amazing over and over again. So it's just beautiful here. It's also a great place to engage in, like, recreational activities. So you can live in the city, you can enjoy all the city things like restaurants and schools, and then you can go just an arm's reach away and do camping or hiking or skiing or biking or whatever it is that you you like to do. And then a lot of people also come for the lifestyle here, whether it's the restaurants uh, or the seawall. Or I think a lot of people move to Vancouver for, from other places in Canada for the progressive values of our city. Um, I was talking with a friend, and he has a neighbor, and she and her partner went back to Alberta for the summer, and they were supposed to be there for two weeks. She said they cut vacation short at 10 days because she couldn't handle it anymore, and she had already pre-booked a meeting with her counselor when she came back because she said, I know I'm just going to have all sorts of baggage to work through after being in Alberta for two weeks. And I think that's the story of many people that I meet. We come here because it's a place where we feel uh, the values of the city match our own. So that's, I don't know why you're here, but that's why a lot of people are in Vancouver. But that's very, very different from what we see in the heart of Paul, in the heart of the New Testament. See, what happens to Paul in Ephesus, and, and it says it in this passage, is that as soon as he gets there, he faces opposition. People who are coming against him. People, in fact, who slander him. And we didn't read, but the next part of the passage, the end of chapter 19, there's a riot that almost starts in Ephesus. And all of the Christians who are there are under scrutiny and could be hurt. And this is on par for what Paul faces. If you read through the book of Acts, he goes to these different cities, and the first thing that he faces is opposition as he shares the good news about Jesus. So he's beat up in many cities. He's financially unstable. He has to go and get a second job just in order to make ends meet. He's mocked. He's put in jail. He loses friends, he's backstabbed, and eventually he's murdered in a city. Now, if any of that happened to any of us here, we would be like, I'm out of here. Or even the threat of any of those things. We'd be very quick to say, I'm out of here. But that's not what Paul does. And just a chapter later, he describes why he has this heart for the city and his expectations and what they're set. This is what he says. 
In every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. That it won't be easy. That life is, in fact, going to be really difficult. That I'm going to have to sacrifice. But here's what he says. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish the course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. To testify to the gospel of God's grace. See, for Paul, cities, knowing that he's going to have, they're going to be difficult places for him. That he's going to have to sacrifice to love the city. Allows him to live into the identity that God has given him. See, cities teach us how to sacrifice. They bring our values and the things that we like into stark contrast with what's available in the city. And so they teach us how to love. As followers of Jesus, they force us into the shape of this dying and rising pattern that we see characterizing the life of Jesus. And so the cities teach us how to love. Secondly is this. Cities are full of people. In the Bible, it says that mountains cry out and an ocean you know, speaks to the glory of God and the trees will clap their hands and even rocks climb out, cry out to Jesus and, and to God's glory. And these are all things that we have in abundance in Vancouver. But there's one thing that gets placed even higher above the ability of nature to focus on our God, and that's people. The Bible says people are made in the the glory and honor of God, and so the image of God. And when we face him, we have the opportunity to shine his glory out in a way that even nature cannot. And so, because there are many people, or more people in cities, there are more image per God per square inch in a city than there is anywhere else in the world. And because there's lots of people in cities, God loves the city. That's the second. The third is that the world gathers in cities. And so if we look around the room today, we see people from all sorts of different cultures, from different ethnicities, from different backgrounds, people that are coming from all over the world. And so the New Testament is because as people came from all over the place to come and do commerce in the city, if they met their ability to take the good news back to their own countries. Cities are strategic places for ministry then, and and cities are strategic places for ministry now. So the world gathers in cities. Fourth, the poor are in cities. The poor gather in cities. There are more poor people per capita in cities than anywhere else in the world. And the Bible says two things about the poor. The first is this, that we, or or that God um, trends towards the poor, that he he has a preferential option towards people who are poor, who are broken, who are downcast. And so when we are in cities, and the poor are in cities, we have an opportunity to minister to the poor in a very unique way. But the Bible also says, at the same time, that God's face can be seen in the poor. And when we minister to the poor, the people who are broken, the people who are in difficult circumstances in addiction, that God's face actually shines through, and that we learn about him in a very unique way. So the poor are in cities. And finally, cities are the cultural centers of the world. So you can be a lawyer in a small town. But if you want to reach the law profession, you need to be in a city. You can be an artist in a small town, but if you want to, have your, to reach artists and have your art speak to the dominant narratives and culture, you need to be in a city. You can have a business in a small town, but if you want to start a unicorn, you need to come to a city. Cities are places because culture flows down from cities. And so for all of these reasons and many, many more, the New Testament church goes to cities. And this is really important uh, for our church and for our community, but uh, it's also important to state at this point in time, because our city is, uh, many people are moving out of our city. Our city's in decline. So it's 2022 this year, and in 2022, there are less people living in Vancouver than there were last year in 2021. In 2021, there was less people living in Vancouver than there were in 2020. 
And that's the first time that's, that's happened in 50 years, that there is a decline of people in our city. And there's lots of reasons for that. We can talk about the, the reasons and, and why people are moving out of the city. But what's concerning for me is that Christians seem to be moving out at exactly the same rate or maybe even at an increased rate. And so we need to recapture this heart and this vision for being in cities and doing city ministry if we want to be like a New Testament church and the church that God's calling us to be. So the new, the, we want to be a family of people who love the city because that's what we see characterized in the New Testament. So Paul, he he goes in this passage to Ephesus, to this city, and he goes with a message. It's called the good news in the New Testament. So he has something he says he he has to offer these people in the city of Ephesus. Now, there's lots of different ways that we could summarize Paul's message. But for the sake of time, I want to just focus on one of the symbolic pieces of language that he uses to talk about the the good news that he has. And that's the word baptism. Baptism. Now, baptism is a church word. And there's lots of different ways for us to understand it, but I want to just focus on two today. The first is this. Baptism is a physical practice. In our uh, roots, people go underneath the water and they emerge again. There's different ways of doing it in uh, different Christian practice, but the way that we do it here is people go under the water and then they come out the other side. And it's a physical practice that signals an identification and immersion in a story. That's what baptism is. It signals an identification and an immersion in a story. So when people in this story are baptized into the name of Jesus, they're saying, I identify with the story of Jesus. So I identify with every other person who's been baptized, regardless of how it happened. I identify with Jesus who was baptized, and I hear the words that were spoken over him. Blessed are you, my son. I'm well pleased in you. And those words are now spoken over us. We identify with the story of Israel in the Hebrew scriptures, who come out of Egypt and go through the Red Sea into the wilderness and the Promised Land. And we identify with the first part, the first story, the first chapter in the Hebrew Bible. Out of the chaos water. So this whole story, we're saying, becomes our story. We immerse ourselves with it and we identify with it. The second thing that baptism does is that it animates us into the world. It's a symbol that's supposed to animate us into the world. And so it's like the spirit of the story now lives with us. And it should change how we live and how we move and how we see the world and what we value and what we hope for. So Paul, when he comes, he asks these people, have you received a new spirit? Are you mobilized in the world in a different and new way? So although the baptism is a Christian practice, the Bible would actually say that all of us are baptized into something. That all of us are immersed in some sort of story, and we have a spirit that mobilizes us into the world, that that affects how we act and how we perform. Now, in Paul's time, it was a lot easier to understand what uh, people, what stories they were immersed in, and how they were mobilized into the world, because people would go to places to signal that. These places are called temples. So if you really cared, if the, the primary thing that you cared about was financial gain, if your life was characterized by just continually checking your bank balance again and again on the app, or watching your portfolio grow, or measuring yourself against other people, then you would go to the temple of Plutus. This is a picture of him. Um, There's two pictures. On the right, uh, the one on the left is after he quit gluten, I think. Um, So he's got the bounty of of wheat up there, Um, just in case any of you needed some, some encouragement for your diets as we start in September. But Plutus was the god of money. He was the god of financial gain. And people would go to his temple. If that's, if that's what my life was all about, I would go sacrifice there, I'll spend time with there, there, I'll identify with that story and that God. If sex and romance were the most important things to you, 
then you would go to the temple of Aphrodite. You would worship there. You would sacrifice there. You would gear your life towards that story. If family was the most important thing, that was the highest good for you, and you just couldn't imagine life without having a family and kids who are doing really well, then you would go to the temples of Hestia and Hermes, who are the gods of family, and you would ask them to bless you and to change your life. If your national identity was the most important thing, then you would worship at the temple of your local god or of the emperor who is pictured here, the cult of Caesar. And so this, this is very easy for Paul to identify the things that people worship because they were going to these temples. Now today it's much more difficult because we don't have the same uh, practice of going to religious shrines. But I still think we're animated and immersed in the same stories as they were 2,000 years ago. Whether it's a story of financial gain or romance or a desire for comfort or family or freedom, whatever it is, These stories mobilize us into the world. And here's one thing I want to make very, very clear. It's not just people out there, our neighbors, who we had a great time with hanging out at the block party yesterday, that are mobilized by these stories. It's it's all of us. All of us are mobilized by these different stories. We may say we, we love Jesus, but our hearts are drawn to the temples and to worship and to sacrifice for these other stories at the same time. And this bears some reflection. Maybe one of the things you want to think about this week, which of these stories mobilizes you? Which are you and is the spirit that's moving you in the world? You know, Archbishop William Temple says, religion is what you do with your solitude. Religion is what you do with your solitude. So when your mind is quiet, when you have that five minutes where you're waiting for the bus, when your kids finally go down to bed, what are the things, stories, what are the, the spirits that mobilize you? in the world. We all have them. Now you might say, what's the problem with being immersed in this story? What's, what's the problem if I, you know, my, I really like family or comfort or money? Why does it matter? Well, N.T. Wright, one of my favorite New Testament scholars, gives an answer that I think summarizes what the Bible would have to say about this. So let's walk through it together. He says this, when human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. He says, when we immerse ourselves in the stories and we're mobilized by things that are not the God of the Bible, then we become something different than what we are actually made to be. We we dehumanize ourselves. He continues, one of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship, what you focus your life on. And what's more, you reflect what you worship not only to the object itself, but also outward to the world around. So when when we worship something... When we immerse ourselves in a story and we're animated by something that is not the story of the God of the Bible, the Bible says it does two things. First, it dehumanizes us. That we become subhuman in some sort of way. But here's the really key thing I want you to take away, that it also dehumanizes other people. In the Bible, your worship is never just a private, small thing that you do. It orients your life in a certain way. And so you start to see people in that same frame of reference. So let's, he gives some examples that are really helpful to us. He says this, Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it. I see myself and my value as my net worth or my bank balance. And when I get in a room of people who are lower net worth than me, I feel great about myself. And when I, you know, head out to West Point Gray and ride by those big houses, I feel terrible about myself. My personal self-worth goes up and down because that's how I see myself as a bank balance. That's the value that I put on my own life. But here's what he says. We also increasingly treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers rather than as human beings. 
we end up dehumanizing people because we commodify them. We see you as a customer and we take the logic and the language of the market and we apply it onto human beings, dehumanizing people in the process. Those who worship sex, he continues, define themselves in terms of it. My preferences, my practices, my past history. I think the language of defining myself by my practices, that that's the most important thing of me or my preferences. I mean, could there really be a better way to describe what we're doing in Vancouver? Whether it's saying, oh, I'm straight, or I am LGBTQ, or whatever it is, that that's the highest and most important thing about me. He says that I will, that will dehumanize me, and, he continues, it will dehumanize other people, increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sex objects. See, in the Bible, there's no private sin. It's not my decision, simply, but it's a decision that affects everybody around me. And so the Bible would say, for example, about something like porn, is porn intake never just affects just me, even though I might do it on my own by myself, because it always affects the people around me. I'm not only dehumanizing myself, but I'm dehumanizing other people because I continually will see or increasingly see them as sex objects, as people that are only valuable as their sexual attraction to me. And I'll put people up higher on a pedestal and lower on a pedestal. He continues, those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. I think of social media, that it turns everybody into either a competitor because you're measuring your amount of likes or whatever it is that you get against someone else or someone that can help you in your desire to have a platform. It commodifies people, and it it makes everything a power play. These and many other forms of idolatry combine in a thousand different ways. And this is really the story of the Bible, just showing all the different permutations and combinations of idolatry and the ways that we dehumanize ourselves and each other all of them damaging to the image-bearing quality of the people concerned and to those whose lives they touch. So why does it matter? Why does it matter? Because when we immerse ourselves in the wrong story, according to the Bible, we become subhuman and we dehumanize other people. And the Bible would kick it up two notches. It's not only that I do that, that I dehumanize myself, and therefore I wreck my relationships, but there's at least two more levels. It would say when we do that, what it creates is systems, actually, of brokenness. Systems of dehumanization that keep us stuck in them. And and we can have uh, really good desires and wants to do things and be motivated to be good people, but these systems of of abuse and these systems of brokenness um, keep us stuck in them. As uh, uh, one of my, my favorite bands, Death Cab for Cutie, says, sometimes we find even our best intentions are in need of redemption because these systems of brokenness that happen. And furthermore, the Bible would say one more level, which comes out in this passage, which is kind of weird to us, but they say there's this, actually this force of darkness in the world, this dark power that reigns and rules over everything. And every time we dehumanize ourselves and each other, it's like we're partnering and strengthening this dark ruler and this dark kingdom that reigns over the entire world. And so why does Paul go to cities? Even though he knows he's going to get beat up, even though he knows it's going to be a really difficult time, because he believes that he has something to offer. Freedom from this dark kingdom that we're a part of, and a different story that we can immerse ourselves with, and a different spirit that animates us into the world. And so he says, it says this, Paul spoke boldly over a period of three months, arguing and persuading people about the kingdom of God. 
the kingdom of God. This is one of the ways that it talks about the message that Paul brings. And in the Bible, this, this phrase, kingdom of God, always speaks to the announcement of a new kind of kingdom and a new king. And of course, that's foreign language to us because we don't, uh, I guess, other than this week when we've thought a lot about the queen. I haven't spent that much time thinking about the monarchy in a very long time, but this week we thought about the king a lot. But then, of course, that, that colored their entire lives. And Paul here is speaking about Jesus as this person who came as the new king. And the Bible says that he's the image of the invisible God, the God who reigns and rules over all things, that Jesus shows us what this God actually looks like. That he's a God who cares deeply for humanity. That he's a God who serves. That he's a God who's very generous with us. And this God, the Bible says, who's, who's the true king over everything, who reigns and rules over all, is also no stranger to our dehumanization and the broken systems and us being under the powers of the dark king. And so he comes to this earth and he enters into our dehumanization story. He immerses himself here. He is commodified. He's sold for money. He's mocked and he's beaten the same things that Paul goes through. It says in the Bible that he's actually beaten so bad he, he looks subhuman. Can't really even tell that he's human. He's like an animal. And he can fully identify with all the ways that we find ourselves in these dark and broken systems. And in what seems to be the end of the story, then he, he's killed which the Bible says is the natural consequence of our systems of dehumanization. That there's a million deaths all along the way, but finally that we will die. But in strange twist, he doesn't stay dead, and he comes alive again and reigns and rules as king, showing that he is truly the stronger king and the stronger power, offering us this hope. And he invites each of us into that new kingdom story. He says, through the dying and rising pattern of my life, if you take that on, as the shape of your life and immerse yourself in me you can be remade as new human beings and you can offer this humanity and, humani- and humanization to the rest of the world. You know, in the First Nations New Testament, which I just started reading uh, this week, I'm going to read through for the rest of the year, Jesus' name, they give everybody a name and they take the names and they put it into uh, like Aboriginal language so that it, it uh, focuses on the the meaning behind the name than the word itself. And the name that they give Jesus is creator sets free. Creator sets free. And that's what Jesus is coming to do. He's saying, I'm coming to set you free and offer you a different way to live, to be immersed in my story and mobilized by my spirit. So how can we receive this good news that Paul went into cities to offer? Well, interestingly, Paul contrasts two different kinds of baptism. Uh, sorry, let me, let me read a passage for us. So it says this, When they heard this, they were baptized into the name of Jesus. So it's the, the, the process of baptism that we're invited into. And Paul talks about two different kinds of baptism here. The first is a baptism of repentance. And in, that's another biblical word. The word repentance just means if I'm walking in one direction, I turn and I go the other way. So I'm walking in one direction and I turn and I go the way. So in biblical language, it's like I'm walking away from God. My story is facing a different direction. And so now I turn and I walk back towards him. And Luther, for example, said that the whole Christian life is repentance. This pattern that we have of turning back to God as he calls out towards us. But Paul, interestingly, in this passage says that this kind of baptism is not enough. Just to, just to focus on repentance is not enough. It's preparatory, but we need something more. And so he talks about a second kind of immersion that we need. And it's a baptism where we receive this new animating force in our lives. A new spirit, a spirit that aligns and mobilizes us into the story of God. And I want to just read two passages for us that talk about what happens when people receive this spirit. Again, they're quite odd, 
but just hang with me through it, and, and we'll, we'll talk about what they mean. So verse 6, it says this, When Paul had laid hands on those people, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in tongues and to prophesy. Verse 18 to 20, And many who became believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated the value and found it to be at 50,000 pieces of silver. In this way, the word of the Lord spread and prevailed. Now, don't get stuck on the details here and what we perceive as the weirdness of this passage, I'm sure. We, we can talk more about that if you want to. I'm not suggesting here that every Christian has to speak in tongues or that's like, you know, we're all going to just try that right now. Uh, or that, you know, you need to go find your Harry Potter books and burn them all. Um, that's not what I'm, I'm, I'm saying here or what this passage is trying to say to us. What I, I see as I read this passage and what really hits me dead center is the spirit that people are doing things with. The passion that they have, the posture that they have towards God. The spirit of change in their lives. The spirit of power. The spirit of sacrifice. The spirit of hope. In short, they're people whose lives are transformed. Their lives are changed by receiving this good news in their lives. And, and here's the question to each of us. That, that, does that characterize us? Does that characterize you? Does that characterize me? The same spirit that we read about in these passages. And as I prayed through this passage for myself this week, I realized that in the areas where I have to say no, that this kind of spirit doesn't you know, characterize my life. It's because I'd say my faith is, is characterized less by this new animating spirit in the world and more by what I'm going to call Canadian repentance. Which is just saying, oh, sorry God, whoops. Sorry, it's just a very nice and polite relationship with God. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know I was offending you there. And that's the characteristic of my God. It's, it's nice and it's polite, but it's not transforming. I uh, was at Parallel 49 last week for my sister's birthday. And I was heading through the corridor, and a woman was coming out the other way. So I was en- going in to use the bathroom. She was walking with a flight of beer out the, out the door, and sh- she said, Oh, watch out there, bud. And I said, Oh, I'm so sorry about that. So I moved out of the way, she walked out, and then we had an exchange where we said sorry about three more times. Where I was like, I'm sorry about that. She's like, oh, so sorry, I didn't see you there. And I was like, oh, no problem, sorry, sorry. It was like the most Canadian thing of all time, okay? Technically, in that story, I repented. I was walking one way, she was walking the other way, and I turned and I walked the other way and I moved out. But let me tell you, there was nothing transformative about that interaction in my life at all. And I say that because I think that that's, like many of us, how we treat our faith. We've repented, we've said, sorry, oh, I've moved the other way. There's no transformation that's happening. We're not reanimated, we're not immersed in the story of God. And so what happens is we have a really hard time loving the city. When the going gets tough, we have a hard time being in the city. Because we could go out to the valley and get more space for less money. I'll tell you how this works in my own life. That I, when, I, when I'm not animated and immersed in the story of Jesus, then I think of, I look at like what we're spending on rent. Like half of our take-home income on rent in a house that I would never buy. And I think, what are we doing? What are we doing here in the city? Or my friends that I go spend time with on the downtown east side, and I see them going through cycles of you know, coming out of addiction and then going back in. And I wonder, what are we doing? And I lose hope for that. 
where we, I have a very hard time engaging in mission. I don't know if you noticed in this passage, but there's two powerful statements about how the word of God is going out and transforming lives. And I think what I have is a very Canadian, again, focus towards that, where I'm like, that would be nice. That would be super if that happened. But it's not the passion that I read about in this passage. It's not a transformed life. And we find ourselves, I find myself wrapped in the stories of this world, just like everybody else. I've repented. I've said, whoops, sorry, God. Sorry about that, bud. But my life is not transformed, and my story is immersed in the same stories that my neighbors are immersed in. The, the, mo- the thing that I think about the most, maybe, is like what my next bonus check is going to look like. Or if somebody might reply to me on Tinder, I might finally start that relationship that I wanted. Or if my bathroom is going to get me remodeled, and how great it's going to look after that. Or maybe if you're a Canucks fan, you want to see if, you know, your, your heart goes to see if Ilya Mikheyev is the missing piece for the Canucks this year. Finally get you into the first round of the playoffs. Um, spoiler alert, he's not. I've heard from the Lord. It's not, he's not going to get you there. But we get wrapped up in just all the stories of whatever they are in the world. And that we're immersed in that story and we're animated there. Even though we might say, oh, I've repented and I believe in God. I love how Eugene Peterson translates Paul's question here. He says this, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And this is how he characterizes it. Did you take God into your mind only? Or did you also embrace him with your heart? Did he get inside of you? Did he get inside? Has he reorganized your life? Or are you just keeping him to the perimeter? Is it a nice, Canadian, polite relationship? Or is it a relationship of immersion and reanimation? I'm going to close with this. You know, in my own personal prayer life, and as I've prayed together as leaders and, and prayed for other, with other pastors, as I prayed for you, as I prayed for our community, I get the sense that God actually is really wanting to do something in this next season of both our church and in the church in Vancouver. And if you're new here and you're like, I bet you he says that every September. It's probably like a canned, you know, thing that he says. It's not. I'm not a hype person at all. If you can't tell already, this is just like me all the time. I've got no, like, Flava Flav about me. There's no uh, big clocks in my wardrobe. If you don't know who Flava Flav is, that probably makes absolutely no sense to you. You can Google it when you get home or ask your parents. Um, but I'm not, I'm not just trying to say that to hype us up for another season of ministry. I, I think there's actually something God wants to do. And we spent the summer time talking about these practices that help to orient us to become people that look like Jesus. And I'm so grateful for all my friends and all the different voices that we've had here over that time of people who have come and introduced us to new practices that I encourage us to take on our lives in order to shape us into people who look like Jesus. And we've got some awesome plans for this next season of ministry. You know, the Francis Carlick event, I'm I'm so excited for it. And the partnership with other churches and many other things that we have going on. And we've got amazing people who are part of this church. But I think it won't matter unless we start with this posture. This posture that we have, that we see in this passage of people who are immersed and mobilized by the story of God, who are responding to the story of Jesus, that are centered on him, a Jesus who came and immersed himself in our story, was animated by the Spirit of God, and offers that same thing to us, to be completely immersed and to be animated by his story. Unless we have that posture, I'm not sure what's going to happen. And unless we cultivate this passion that we see in Paul, that he's willing to go to the cities despite knowing that it's going to be really, really difficult for him. He's not motivated by comfort. He's motivated by something different in order to bring the good news of Jesus to Ephesus. 
and see people who make Jesus the center and and are transformed by his spirit. And so I don't want God just to be a church that's characterized by God as like an appendix to our story. That we're writing our whole story and God is just this, this small appendix about what's happening, but rather, as the Bible says, as the author and perfecter of our faith. The author and perfecter of our story. And I think that's the invitation of this passage and the invitation for us today. To be immersed in the story of God. To be identified with Christ and his life, his death, and his resurrection. And to be willing to be mobilized by the Spirit, to be transformed. We're going to respond now uh, in a couple different ways. So Andrew and the band are going to come up and they're going to lead us in some musical worship. So I invite you to sing along. Carly and I are going to be available for prayer. So Carly's going to sit up here. I'll be sitting up in the front if you'd like to come pray with us. If you'd like to give, we invite you to do that using the website. And then we'll take communion, which is another way of us practicing the story of God and taking it in. So I invite you to come up front. Uh, My wife will be holding the basket here. You can come grab uh, a communion cup. Please don't walk in front of our ASL community over here. So come down the middle aisle and then go back out this way. And then after the first song, um, we will uh, take communion together. Let me pray as we move into a time of response and worship. God, we recognize uh, that, um, or I just, I praise and thank you that you have come, that you are a God who immersed yourself in our story and that you freed us through your life, your death, and resurrection. Now you offer us on the other side to be immersed in your story and to be mobilized by your spirit. So I pray for each of us in this room, wherever we may find ourselves, wherever your hand is reaching out, uh, that we may take it. You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear where you're moving in our midst. And I pray that we would become a people that are postured in, in just an openness to you and that your spirit would move in power we move in sacrifice, just like we see in the book of Acts, that we may be people who are transformed and also, as it says in this passage, that the good news would go out from this place. So as we worship together now, as we give, as we pray, we, we just invite you, Spirit, to come and move amongst us, to guide us and to lead us and to draw us together. We pray these things in the name of Christ.